My name is Haley Gilliland, and this is my story. I have been going to Lakeland Community Church for as long as I can remember. I am one of the few who has had the pleasure of going to Sunday school on a tablecloth on the floor of a movie theater. I was Eddie Betty then, and my favorite thing to do alongside Ryan McCrary was climb under the movie seats after service and dig for spare change. That is disgusting to think about now, but we loved it. We would always come up with an unusual amount and spend it in the sticker machines in the lobby. After all these years, I learned that Ryan's grandpa had actually put money under there for us to find. <laughs> in my experience, community is like that. It has always snuck up on me on times when I least expected it. Times where I thought I could do something by myself, but in reality, the community got through them has been lifting me up the entire time. I have had almost the exact same group of girls by my side all through elementary, middle, and high school. I have babysat children, served at the coffee bar, and attended youth group for the better part of my life. I have been brought up on surrender together love. This church has raised me. As someone who has seen the church go from its restaurant days to its movie theater days to finally this beautiful church building, I will be the first to say that this church is not just a place. It is Sue Swick who hemmed my prom dress. It's everyone who came to see my shows while I swayed in the back for six years and were there when I was front and center. It's Jason Leahy who taught me how to play guitar. It's Julie Tiesman, Michelle Bledsoe, who led my small group. It's Megan Hunter who helped me shop for my college audition outfit. Most of these things didn't even happen in this building, but they happened because of this church. Through community, God shows himself to me more clearly than any other time. The community has shown up for me time and time again, even when I may not have deserved it. One particular story we explored in my small group with Julie is the book of Hosea. It tells the story of a prophet who was called by God to marry a prostitute. The whole thing is a parable for God's relationship with Israel and how just as Hosea married a woman he knew would be unfaithful to him, God knew that he was loving on a people who would not always love him back. As we talked about the story deeper, the girls and I realized how much of a choice that love really is. Being a community is not easy 100% of the time. There are times where I've been ungrateful, times I've been dishonest, times I didn't show up for someone else when they needed me. But I have learned that with each new day, we can make a choice to engage and let the community show us a love that God is desperate for us to experience. Our God is an act of God. He is constantly calling us to go outside of ourselves and to show love to others the same way that he shows love to us. My choir teacher once said, the more sensitive you become to things that are beautiful, the less likely you are to take beautiful things away from someone. The deeper I immerse myself in community and the deeper I immerse myself in my relationship with God, I find a greater desire to make sure everyone around me is experiencing what I have. Two days ago, I graduated from high school. So this fall, for the first time in 14 years, I'll be going to a church that isn't Lakeland. I'll be in a new place where I don't know anybody, and I'll have to build my community from scratch. This is actually what I'm most excited about. <laughs> um, can't you tell? <laughs> Based on my experience here, I know I will be able to recognize community and build it wherever I go. And there I know God will keep on loving me. My name is Haley Gillen, and this is my story. Well, Lakeland, uh, that's what you're after. That's sort of the brass ring of church. Uh, other people gathering around a family, uh, raising their children, 
kids having a good experience uh, of being around Christians, um, not being judged, just doing life together. So well done, uh, Lakeland. Uh, there's one in the bag right there. Haley, the rest is up to you, so uh, don't mess it up. We, we've done all we can. Um, I have a, something else to, this is sort of my own little announcement, and uh, I've kind of been meaning to do several small announcements around here. And this one involves a picture, Wendy, of a mower. Oh, yes, it does. A lawnmower. Because uh, we were down at Eastland yesterday. Eastland House is a house that we are repurposing, rehabbing, remodeling. It's a beautiful three-story brick home on Linwood Boulevard. It's deep in the heart of uh, zip code 64128, the uh, murder capital uh, of the United States two or three years ago. It's a very desperate place, violent. Anyway, we were down there working, but all of our stuff got ripped off, including our lawnmowers. And this is about our fourth time we've been broke into and ripped off. We lock things up real tight and work on it all the time. And it, you know, it's amazing how much effort thieves will put in to stealing something when they could put that into a job. But that's another comment. Um, nonetheless, we mow lawns down the inner city, and we don't have any mowers. So this is my unashamed solicitation that if you have an old mower that looks like this with big wheels on the back, uh, preferably not self-propelled, no bag, just a raw engine with a blade. You know what I'm talking? That'll go over rough terrain. And it's time for you to get a new mower and yours still runs, please don't give us your junk, um, then we could use a couple of mowers, okay, to get through the week. And if you could donate it, that would be great. We'll get you your tax write-off and all that sort of thing, okay? so. Um, this is a part of what Lakeland's gotten involved with, with As One. We have gone into the inner city. We are trying to become neighbors down there and be in solidarity with those that are living with this sort of thing. Stuff getting stolen all day long. Welcome to the inner city, Lakeland. All right? And that's what we're after. So we embrace it, and it still makes me extremely angry. So I'm dealing with it. All right. So I have a couple of guests, Dennis and Jim. If you would come up and sit down around the kitchen table. I want to talk to you guys, uh, and I want to present something to you. Do you know that Lakeland has monks? <laughs> yeah, not monkeys, monks. We actually have monks, and here are two of them. We're not real official monks. We, we don't have any sort of special costumes or hats or, you know, garb or anything like that. Come on in. And, um, but there is a spiritual order at Lakeland Community Church, and it consists I think I, we have a picture of you guys meeting this morning, right? And there's six of them. And why don't you tell us what you guys do at the spiritual order? What is the spiritual order and what, what is your role and what's your MO? The spiritual order is primarily focused on praying, praying in community, as you can see, mm -hmm. praying regularly every Sunday morning at 730. Um, we pray for the church. We pray for the words that are spoken here. We pray for blessings and intercession for the congregation, for the sanctification of our staff, our volunteers, our teachers, our pastors, our elders. Uh, we share communion. We, um, we uh, consecrate the elements of communion when the, we do communion when here we in do the sanctuary. Here. Okay. Um, 
we actually helped set up the communion tables and so you guys are the elves running around getting all that ready for the rest of, of us yeah okay a lot of scurrying Just checking um yeah thank you the, the 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 essence of what we're doing is trying to get very intentional about living a life of prayer because prayer is more than just sitting in a darkened room and mumbling something. There's, uh -huh. It's a conversation and it's an activity and it's, it's an active pursuit. And that's what we're about. Jim, uh, how do you perceive then the role, uh, or add on to what Dennis has said, how do you perceive the role of a spiritual order in a church like ours? Well, uh, for one thing, we, uh, <clears throat> we take seriously the, the words of the Apostle Peter that uh, God has made us a royal priesthood yeah and so uh in our prayers for you and in the consecration of the sacraments that you take on sunday mornings and such we're acting as your priests uh mm. we're interceding for you and uh and uh, praying for you and with you and and through you in a sense and you're with us at that time also now you guys are, are real hidden as a matter of fact i'm kind of ruining your disguise here by bringing you up here because nobody really knows you guys exist and you've been doing this for several years with others right and uh so sorry to kind of blow your cover but uh i thought people would want to know that we as a church are trying to reinvent or rediscover maybe it's more appropriately spirituality and to bring back something that's been missing for 500 years uh so what else do you do then to make this happen and how does this play out in an evangelical church like ours uh, <laughs> Jim and I and, and other people here at Lakeland are the product of a very intentional generation process of introducing or reintroducing, I would say, mature Christians. Mm -hmm. people That's with, polite. Uh, people with a lot of mileage on them. Geezer Christian. I'm sorry. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I, I'll own that. I'll own that. Uh, <laughs> uh, to a contemplative rhythm of life. Mm -hmm. And we've done that. We were both in Generation 1, and we went up to Conception Abbey in Nottoway County, way out in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by wind turbines, mm -hmm. and uh, hung out with the monks up there. Uh -huh. And we learned that the contemplative life is not a solitary or, or exclusively solitary uh, existence or, or pursuit. It's a communal thing there's mm -hmm. there's a community aspect to it that you overlook at your peril that community prayer doing the daily office which is for those not familiar yeah, what's is, that uh, it's a cycle of prayer you pray through the Psalms over a period of, depending upon the community of, of one week two weeks or four weeks all 100 all 150 Psalms are prayed several times a day right yes mm -hmm. in community uh, and I mean, you can commit two hours a day or more to it hmm. if you get really serious about now, it. Now, have, Jim, have you done this? Do you, do you do the Psalms? Yes. Every day? Every day. Four so, times a day. Four times a day, you're praying through the Psalms. And do you do it, Dennis? Yes. Okay, I do too. So there are uh, several of us around here. And our goal in that isn't just to get a merit badge for doing it. Our goal is to participate with the Holy Spirit, praying the words of God back to God, in community and uh, interceding on behalf of others, praying there, for them. There's a formation process that this works. Mm -hmm. If, like anything else, I, I heard once that if you were going to become really good at something, you had to practice 10,000 hours. Yeah, that's what of they it. say. And that's a lot of time. But 
becoming steeped in that, becoming mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. requires that kind of commitment. Yeah. And so that's what, that's the path that we've set out upon. And Thank it's you. a life pursuit. Thanks for doing it. You know, there are other kinds of prayer that go on around here. Peter Lanier prays here on Wednesday nights. Uh, I just sort of an open type prayer. We do Lexio Divina on Wednesday mornings at 6.30, which is a more formalized meditation and contemplation. There are lots of things that are going on around here. Various people pray in all sorts of ways. Uh, last weekend, I think, the women went on a day of solitude at Powell Gardens. We, we are really trying to re-embrace, uh, we're trying to embrace a church that is immersed in prayer in a variety of creative ways. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. It's nice of you to join us up here. Thanks. All of this gets around to, like uh, Jim and Dennis were saying, about this doctrine, really, uh, called the priesthood of all believers. I know it's not exactly at the top of your list to say, wow, I sure wish I could hear a sermon on the priesthood of all believers. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it's near the top of my agenda, So, and since I'm the one with the microphone. Um, anyway, this comes from a verse, this idea of the priesthood of all believers, that everybody is a priest. It comes from this verse from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're going to delve into this real quick, and I'm going to try and colorize it so you can understand what this means. I don't think the verse is necessarily difficult to understand. It seems pretty straight ahead. The problem is, is it's gotten sort of what we call verse jacked. It's gotten hijacked and meant to say something that really wasn't there in the first place. And that's why this is a deeply misunderstood passage is because people have put it on a different agenda. Here's where the agenda went. It went to a place that said this. Everyone's a priest. So therefore, falsely, everyone then is a church unto themselves. Since they are saved all by themselves, everyone is saved alone then everyone is a private, personal, solo Christian. You do your spiritual life alone. <clears throat> that is nowhere found in Scripture. That is not a part of what is called the body of Christ. It has nothing to do with it. But our American culture, our ideals, our ideas in America for the last 300 years of, of private, radical individualism, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness have swamped this idea of a communal living. And instead, we have now isolated Christians and, to where, and calling everyone their own, not only just their own priest, but their own very church. This has nothing to do with Scripture, nothing to do with what Jesus talked about, and nothing to do with at least the last couple thousand years of Christianity since it began with Jesus. All of this comes out, and then they pull out the big stick, this verse, uh, and we say, well, this verse in 1 Peter says, we're all priests, so therefore I'm right. And I think it's a misinterpretation. In 1500, this goes back 500 years, in 1500, the Roman Catholic Church in Europe was commingled with government. You all remember this from World History Class or something like that, or some Discovery Channel program? And the king, the economics, salvation, forgiveness, it was all one. There was no difference. There was no separation of church and state. The, the, the power of the state was mixed in with the power of the church. And so the church was extremely powerful. And, of course, we all know that in any system of power, some people begin to abuse it. Not all, but a few. And they typically get pointed out. 
And what happened in the, in the Catholic Church in Western Europe around the 15th, 16th century was the selling of something called an indulgence. An indulgence for a, a big amount of money, you could spring a relative soul from purgatory, this sort of no man's land in between heaven and hell where people were working off their sins. The selling of indulgences was out of control. Of course, you know, the Cathedral of Notre Dame and so forth was built with all that sort of money, and there's a lot of nice things. But people also got extremely rich, and it just wasn't very Christian. Keep in mind, this is not all Catholics. I am not on any Catholic bashing. You know Lakeland, we were actually pretty tight. We'd go up to a monastery and so forth, so don't ever think that about us. A German theologian, a no-name little monk named Martin Luther, who was teaching the Book of Romans for 15 years to fellow monks, finally got up his nerve and went to the Catholic Church to the upper people and said, you know what? It's not in Scripture. I don't find it in the book of Romans in the Apostle Paul. Anywhere that you ever earn your way to heaven. You are justified by faith alone, it says. Well, he got in big trouble for that because he was protesting against the abuses of the church and we became the Protestants out of this. Luther and the other reformers renounced along with this protest the, the clergy class, the priests, the monks, and monasteries. The Protestants stopped having any monasteries, any special class of people, and on its most radical expression, there were no pastors, no ministers, no singing, no instruments, nothing. There's still those kind of churches around. They said, we need no pope, we need no priests, we need no intermediaries, intermediaries between us and God. Now, if we are talking about salvation... That is absolutely right. Because of Jesus Christ, you do not need anyone to go between you and God. Jesus is our high priest. Okay? But that is not necessarily the whole story of what a priest does. That isn't about what we're talking about when we talk about being a priest. It might have turned into something like that, but that's not what we're talking about. Just exactly what are we talking about when we talk about a priest? A priest is not someone who doles out salvation. A priest is someone who ushers other people into the presence of God. And we need to look no further than the Old Testament. And the entire story of the Old Testament is filled with the descendants of Aaron, Moses' right hand, who became the Levite tribe, and they were the priestly people. What they did was simply show other people, the other Jews, how to be in a relationship with God. They helped administer it. They did not mediate as much as salvation like they're doling it out. Oh, you get some and you don't. I'm making the judgment call. As much as they were saying, let me help you understand how to be with God and other people. The Torah, the law, where the Ten Commandments started the whole law. You know, don't worship idols. Honor your father and mother so it goes well for you. Nice to do that on Mother's Day. Uh, don't murder. Don't lie. Don't covet what other people have and all this sort of thing. That law was put in place to show society how to be fair, how to be just. Our Western laws are taken from the original Old Testament because they just seem so right. The Sabbath, the Sabbath day of rest prescribed in the law, observe the Sabbath, is because humans are designed to have at least one day a week where you do nothing. I go to China every now and then, and there they have no, there's no Sunday, there's no day off, there's no Saturday Sabbath. People work 20, 30 days. You talk to them like, I've just been working and working and working. They have no concept of it. 
But the human soul is wired up to have a day where you don't create. You don't do anything. You simply reflect upon the goodness of life and enjoy the day and enjoy God and pray. The Old Testament showed people how to be together, how to be healthy. In the Old Testament, for instance, when someone sins, let's say you dig a pit. I have no idea why you're digging a pit. Let's move on. But your neighbor's donkey falls into the pit in the Old Testament. You have to pay for the donkey because it died when it hit bottom. Okay? Now, who do you think took care of that? Was it the, did they call the local sheriff? Did they, did they call lawyers? No. It was the local priest who helped people say, okay, you lost your donkey. What was the donkey worth? Okay, let's get this all squared away. You make reparations. Everything will be great. They help people stay in community. They help neighbors stay neighbors. That's what was going on with the Old Testament law. A priest is someone who orchestrates the tribe's culture. They perform the ceremonies of life. They help people give birth. They help people get married, go through sickness, death, the coming of age, the introduction to the church and the spiritual life later on. The priest shows people the God-bathed world all around them, provides ceremony and rituals and moments where it can be celebrated. That's what a priest does. The priest had the blessing for each day. Perhaps you've heard this blessing. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It comes out of Numbers 6. Numbers is not exactly one of the most popular books in the Bible. Nonetheless, this is a very famous blessing that comes out. It says this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. You ever heard that? It's a beautiful blessing. But I think the most common tool of a priest, the most common sacred tool for anyone is a table. And that's why we have this table up on platform. There were three tables. The first one is a peasant table, which we put up on the screen. Do you know how much expensive it is if you go to the furniture store? We're looking for images, and you want to buy a peasant table? 3000 bucks for a peasant table. Like, what peasant can afford that? So... <laughs> Anyway, we have a picture of a very expensive, cheap peasant table. It was a table like this that some 3,000 years ago, the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt, you know, and Moses is going to lead them out. On the night before they leave Egypt, what is called the Exodus, they gathered around a table like this. Family, friends, extended family, they gathered around a, family, uh, a table like this, and they ate a hurried meal. It was a ceremonial meal, and it became known as the Passover meal because outside the door, they, they killed a lamb. They cooked the lamb and ate it. They took the blood of the lamb, and they spread it on the post and lentil, and so the angel of death would pass over them. That's why it's called the Passover meal. They stood around this table with their coats on, their sandals on, their cloak in their hand, and they ate bitter herbs to reflect upon how bitter their 430 years of slavery had been. They ate with their cloak on because they were leaving. You couldn't keep any of the meat from the lamb because it's not going to keep anyway because there's no leftovers when you're leaving the next day. All of this got ritualized and turned into the Passover meal, standing around a peasant table. And the scriptures say, when your son or daughter asks you hundreds of years from now as you celebrate this Passover meal as a Jewish family, why are we doing this? The father acting as priest answers the son or the daughter and says, this is why we do it. 
why we eat the bitter herbs, why we stand, why there are no leftovers. All that time, every year this gets celebrated in Jewish homes, they are remembering. And the family is acting out their spirituality around a peasant table. Jump forward from the Exodus, about 12, 1400 years, to Jesus' time. Jump forward to Jesus' time. It was the same exact Passover meal in the upper room. This is, I think, Leonardo da Vinci's upper room, painted around 1500. Please don't confuse this with Jesus' time. It's not like that. Nonetheless, it's the most famous one, so I used it. They sat on both sides of the table. Get over it. At this meal, Jesus reinterpreted that Passover meal when they were standing in Egypt. The ancestors were standing in Egypt. And he said this. He said, it's not a lamb's blood. It's my blood. It's not their flesh that you eat. It's my flesh. I am the blood on the post and the lintel that will have death pass over you. And the disciples are scratching their heads saying, that's crazy. We've never said anything like that. That's, what are you doing? And, of course, in a few hours, he's arrested. And then that Friday morning, what we call Good Friday, all of our sins are atoned for by Jesus on the cross. Jesus, at that table, acting as priest, interpreting the day's events for his followers. Not only does the Lord's table look back at Jesus' time and, and, and Exodus' time, but it also then looks at a third table, a table in the future, a table called the, the table of consummation, where everything is brought together. It is brought to its peak. At that table, on that night, uh, the same table shows up, and it is a feast table. And here we have a picture of a church where they actually have a big table, and they're having a feast. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink anew of it in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to drink this with you, brothers and sisters, until I raise the glass, and we are all seated at the feast table, and I say, let the feast begin. It will be the beginning of the new beginning. Every believer will be there. That is a big table. Three tables, three different meals, all different and yet the same. But we have one more table, and it's right here. The kitchen table. This table is the most common priestly table the world has ever known. It isn't famous or celebrated. Nobody puts a kitchen table in a stained glass window and says, wow, what a thing of beauty. The world pretty much ignores it, and yet it is as divine and majestic as any altar or table in any church, in any cathedral. It is your kitchen table in your house. This table, your kitchen table, is there to remember where you came from. Every crayon mark, every scratch, every dent and burn spot where he broke down the lawnmower engine and rebuilt it, all of that is there. Every part of it tells a story. You have been interpreting for your children and to each other and your friends and family all of life at the kitchen table. It is a sacred place. It is this place. The Jews in the older day 
And even to today, sometimes, they call this in the Hebrew the mikdash miat. The mikdash miat means my little sanctuary. And here on the Sabbath night, on Friday nights, even to today, you'll gather friends and family as a Jewish family and celebrate the mikdash miat, the little sanctuary, and they ask others to join. Have you ever been to a, a Shabbat, a, a Friday night service with Jewish friends? If you have Jewish friends, you, you need to figure out how to weasel in on it. You know, invite yourself or something. Behave yourself. But nonetheless, it's a very powerful thing to watch. That is a little sanctuary. And you are the priest and priests of it. That is yours. If around this kitchen table you argue about credit card debt and go through the pains and throes of money, you are being a priest or priestess to your children that says, money is a really anxiety-ridden thing. I should be really worried about it. And money either becomes a very evil thing or a god. If around this table you fight and struggle and you can slice the tension with a butter knife, you are actually being a priest, something very destructive that teaches children how to be tense and anxiety-ridden and have tense dinners. If, on the other hand, you share life together and laugh and joke and kid each other and talk about the day's events and the highs and the lows of what happened, you're also reinterpreting a world. If you mention what you even prayed about, what you guys are struggling through, and say we're kind of worried about how we're going to afford another car, or we're refinancing. This kitchen table becomes a place where life gets done like that. If you're talking about how come we can't get pregnant, or why have we been pregnant too many times, and have all these other people around the table, we can't even keep track of their names. <laughs> you, number four. Go get another plate. All of that gets done around the kitchen table. If in your house, over by this table, there is a television blaring all the time, even if no one's watching it, you are being a priest or a priestess that tells your kids and everyone else in the house, like, just numb out to a blaring, noisy, blue box that says it is better to have this going on in your head than to actually have quiet. You see, everyone, television is a marvelous, fun tool. But it is not a religion. It is not human. It's an extra that we use judiciously, selectively. You getting the drift here of what I'm talking about? In your home, you are the priest and the priestess to your family and to all guests and relatives. It is all going on right there. I went to lunch this past week with staff and discussed about how they were talking about how good the Qualls parenting classes, the Qualls, the counselors who are doing this parenting class around here right now, they were being priests and priestess to me sitting there at lunch. They're talking about and describing how they were going to apply, you know, these things they're learning. Little stuff they were saying, things, I can even remember it, you know. They're saying things like, make sure you focus on the relationship instead of the rules. Like, don't tell your kid, you know, you can't go. You say, I don't want you running out in the street because I love you. I don't want you getting squished like a little squirrel. Don't do that. Not, you know, wham, wham, wham. Just stuff like that. They're being priests and priestess to me telling me this sort of thing. The few of us guys who've been getting together for some 18 years get together and discuss life over breakfast or over prayers. 
We are actually discipling each other, being priests to each other all these years. Being spiritual for each other. Pulling each other up when one is less. Talking about raising kids, marriage, infidelity, any other kind of thought like that, money, what kind of car to buy, all that sort of things going on. Doing life together. We are a living temple of the Spirit. Paul describes us as a body. And as a body, you can't have a body that's all one big ear. The body is made up of different parts, Paul says, and we all need each other. Some people are more devout and spiritual than other people. And those that aren't as spiritual and devout, they need the people who are more devout. They need these guys doing their prayers. Are we not all connected? Or is that only about serving? Can it not be about spirituality as well? You're like, yeah, but the people who only come on Christmas and Easter to church and on Mother's Day, you know, they're kind of lame. Like, no, they're not. Because you are a body of Christ. They're doing the best they can, or maybe they should do better. Who cares? Some people are being spiritual on their behalf. And we throw that into our Protestant mind. We're like, hey, now wait a second. Everybody's supposed to be at pitch fever intensity. But you know what really happened with the priesthood of all believers? We all dropped down to the least common denominator instead of rising up to all be priests. Mmm. Mm-hmm. All right, mothers, if you haven't picked up on what I'm saying today, let me just be very, very clear at this moment. Even to your dying day, you will be priestess to your children. Yea, even during your death and after your death, you will always be the most influential influential priest to your children. They will watch how you go through old age. They will watch how you understand it. They will watch you go through your death. And they will always remember what you have to teach them. You are the most important person for showing them a God-bathed life and world. It is not always easy or pleasant. I can't even begin to describe how unpleasant it might be. It is full of joys as well. But you need to strap up and sturdy up and get strong because you have a a calling, not a job, a calling to do. And it is gathered around the kitchen table being priestess to your children. Interpret the world well for them. Show them how to live a life that is not only deeply connected to God, but that is honest and sincere and rich. It is a calling. I'll say this. The Protestant church needs to rethink the priesthood of all believers. We need to rethink what it means for some people to be spiritual on behalf of other people. We need to challenge this. It's been missing for 500 years. And we need to reintroduce the idea of monks or spiritual orders, all different kinds of ways of getting this done. It doesn't have to be monasticism. It could be something else. But we have to get back. Instead of all of us lowering down to a least common denominator spirituality, we need to all raise it up. And some will be better at it than others. And we need to learn that that's just really the way it is. It's okay. So let's think hard about this one. Now, here's how I'd like for you to end. This blessing, let's all stand up. This blessing that we, um, 
that I mentioned earlier out of Numbers chapter 6. This is the oldest blessing that we know. This, is, this thing is over 3,000 years old. If you could say it in the Hebrew, you'd sound really cool, but we don't want to do that because we don't know Hebrew. But So we're going to do it in English. And, and then let's do this thing that I don't have to do because I'm standing up here and I don't like doing this sort of thing, so I'm going to impose it upon you. If you're standing around someone who you even marginally care about, like a spouse or a kid or something like that, that and it's your kid, not just any kid, you know, you, you need to like grab their hand or put your hand on the shoulder of their kid or something like this and think about them for this blessing. I know you married couples don't want to touch each other, but <laughs> everyone's doing it. It's safe. It's okay. All right? So join me as we say this blessing together as a church. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Go in peace.